This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Here we are again. How many of you were here yesterday? <laughs> Damn. We have to think of all new answers to their questions. Exactly. I'm, I'm guessing I don't need to do an introduction. Would that be correct? Let me just introduce myself. I'm Peter Guthridge. I'm a journalist and author. I also need to just thank The Guardian for sponsoring this event. Uh, you know, of course, who this man is. Uh, we're going to chat for a little bit. You're going to then ask him lots of questions, I assume. He's then going to be signing copies of his books uh, afterwards in the bookshop. For the signing, can I just say now, um, there's only time for each of you to have one book signed. No merchandising can be signed. Uh, George isn't going to have time to do inscriptions, so it's just going to be uh, a signature, if that's OK. Anyway, uh, we're going to get on with it now. Uh, just give him one more round of applause, and then we'll get started. Um, I wanted to ask you first, really, about, um, about the books that preceded uh, Game of Thrones, if we, can, if we can leap in. Yes, most people are startled to find out there were books <laughs> that preceded Game of Thrones. I, but can, can you see... I, I'm, I'm a case of, uh, you know, working 40 years to be an overnight success. <laughs> can you see the roots of these books in those earlier science fiction books and stories? You know, for me, it, it's uh, a continuum. I mean, uh, I like to do different things. But certainly you can, you can look at some of my earlier work and say, yeah, he, he, he did this here, and he also did a, a version of it in, in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, so there are certain themes and archetypes and things like that that I return to time and time again. But hopefully I'm doing something different in each, in each book as well. I, I don't like to repeat myself. And you started writing really early on when you were, when yeah, you were a kid. Yeah, when I was just a kid. Selling monster stories to the other kids in the projects. Usually complete with a dramatic reading, you know, uh, <laughs> making the werewolf sounds. Then, then my career was abortive, though, because one of my main customers uh, started having nightmares, and his mother came to my mother, and my mother <laughs> just shut down my whole business there. <laughs> How old were you then? How old were you then when you were terrified? Uh, it was grade school. I don't know. I probably was, I probably was like 10 or 11, and my customers were like seven or eight, you know, a little, <laughs> little younger than me. But you were making good money? A nickel story. It was pretty good. Uh, you know, I could buy a Milky Way with one story sale, or I could buy two of them. I could buy a comic book. So that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And this is in... This the is stories in... no longer exist, sad to say. That was going to be a question later on. Um, and this was in New Jersey. You, you, you grew Bayonne, up in New Jersey. Bayonne, New Jersey. Born and raised in Bayonne, New Jersey, yeah. Blue-collar industrial town right outside of New York City on the other side of New York Bay. And your life was a very enclosed life? Well, we seemingly. lived in the projects on First Street, and I went to school on Fifth Street, and that was my world, pretty much. We didn't have a car. We never went anywhere. But I saw the world. I mean, Bayonne's a peninsula, so we were on First Street. Across the street from us was the Kilvan Cull, Deepwater Channel, connected New York Bay to New York Bay. Uh, and big ships were passing there all the time, big freighters with flags from all over the world. I had an encyclopedia, so I would look up the flags and, you know, Liberia, China, various Scandinavian countries with their crosses. Occasionally one from England. 
And, and you would imagine going to all these places? Yeah. Or? Yeah. And the places in the comic books, which are even cooler, Barsoom and Middle Earth and, and Gotham City and uh, all of that stuff. And they came into your life quite early as well? You, you were a, an early reader? Uh, of comic books, yeah. We had, uh, I, I don't know how, what the uh, British equivalent of my generation learned to read with, but in, in, in America at that time, you, you learned to read with these books called Readers in school, all of which featured the adventures of Dick and Jane and their little daughter Sally, the most boring family who had ever lived on the planet Earth. And, uh, you know, they had a dog Spot who ran, run, Scott, run, see Spot, run, run, Spot, run. I couldn't see the point of reading if it meant hanging around with Dick and Jane some more. They were pretty, <laughs> pretty dull. But then, fortunately, I discovered comic books. And, and you know, Batman and Superman and, and uh, their gang were far more interesting than Dick and Jane. <laughs> so I became a comic book reader. Right. And then you moved on to kind of, what, superhero ones? And... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Robert A. Heinlein was uh, Have Space Will Travel was the first science fiction book I read given to me uh, for Christmas by a friend of my mother's. And then I started buying actual books. Books. That was a hardcover. For like 10 years, it was the only hardcover I owned. But I would want the, the spinner rack with the science fiction paperbacks and other paperbacks was right next to the comic book rack. So I would go down there every week and weigh how I should divide my, my massive allowance between comic books and book books. The book books were much more expensive. They were 35 cents. The comic books were only a dime. And then they went to 12 cents. That completely ruined my budget. <laughs> oh my god, where am I going to get that extra two cents? <laughs> now that you can't sell stories to uh, frighten you. Yeah, that's, that's right. And were you a library user? Was that part of your thing as well? You were getting books out of the library? I, I did, yeah, I did. We had a little library on Fifth Street, right across the, around the corner from my school. and. Uh, I went through the science fiction section pretty quickly. Uh, you know, they had, it was a science fiction section, but also a, a, a young adult, I guess they'd call it now. In those days, it was juvenile. And they didn't want to let me take books from the adult section. So I, I kind of ran out of books to read at that library. And then I had to take the bus to the bigger library uptown on 31st Street. But was there a distinction for you between actually owning these books you were holding and, and, and borrowing them, or did you not mind that you, you had sometimes had to take the books back? Well, I didn't, I didn't like the idea of giving them back. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, you had to, because otherwise <laughs> you would have to pay a penny, you know, in late fees if you didn't get it back. So I would take out a few at a time and read them and bring them back. And we, we, you went, you'd went to university to, do, to study journalism, but were you always thinking you were going to be a fiction writer, or had you not thought that? Well, it depends on exactly when you're talking about. When I was quite young, I figured I would be like an astronaut. Uh, although we didn't call it astronaut, I would end up, that was they invented that with the Mercury program. We called them spacemen. I wanted to be a spaceman. You know, some of my friends wanted to be cowboys or cops or something like that. But I always said spaceman was was much cooler. Um, I would have liked to be a superhero, but that was harder to uh, <laughs> harder to achieve. I had, you know, I was always looking for the magic ring that Green Lantern had because I figured I could really handle that. If, if only I could find a magic ring and uh, like Green Lantern, uh, you know, I didn't want to, I knew I wasn't from the planet Krypton, so I couldn't get powers the way Superman did just by being born with them. Batman's method it seemed to involve a lot of exercise and working out <laughs> that, that, that I didn't like the idea of. That was, that was no good. The Flash was hit by a lightning bolt. That sort of sounded painful. 
but finding a magic ring that was right up my my alley. But uh, unfortunately, I could I could never find one. <laughs> and did you try writing comic books as well and drawing them or anything? Was that part of your of your? Work? I was part of the first generation of comic fandom. Yeah. I was just splitting off from science fiction fandom at the day. It was mostly high school kids, which I was at the time. So I wrote uh, stories for the comic fanzines. Little, uh, you know, we called it fan fiction at the time, but it, it's not like fan fiction today. Um, today, fan fiction means writing stories about, you know, other people's characters and worlds. But we were creating our own characters and worlds. It was just fans writing for fanzines, not for money, but just for... Uh, you know, the gratification of seeing your name in print and, and people would write in and say they liked your story and you would get that affirmation, or as we call it, ego boo, ego boosting. <laughs> we always had to get ego boo. Uh, so yeah, I, I did that uh, all through high school and uh, even into college. And then in college, I started submitting to the professional magazines and uh, finally started making some professional sales. Sold the story to Galaxy in 1970, my first professional sale. Appeared in February '71. Got ninety-four dollars. Ninety-four dollars was a lot of money in those days, man. I'd lived high in the hog on that ninety-four dollars. <laughs> Could buy a lot of twelve-cent comic books for ninety-four dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and and were you, do you feel you were finding your? Had you found your voice by then, or were you being imitative of, of other writers in the in those early works that you were doing? Uh, I I think you you always begin with imitating. Uh, hopefully different writers all the time, you know. You, you don't want to be a derivative of one person, uh, but you, you have to learn techniques. You read writers you admire and say, well, can I do that? Can I do that? And try different things, try different stories. And I always moved around among the genres and the subgenres. I mean, my first professional sale was a science fiction story, far future alien planets kind of thing. My second professional sale was, uh, was a ghost story. Um, so fantasy, uh, maybe a little bit of horror, although the ghosts weren't that scary. But uh, so I've always liked uh, the various flavors of imaginative fiction. Yeah, yeah. But and then you you won a, a, an award for a, a novella, which was uh, the the Liar. Song for Liar, yeah. my first. Uh, yeah. Well, I was nominated for award. I was, you know, pretty successful right from the start. Uh, I didn't have to go through the years of humiliating rejections that many writers go through. Not that I didn't get rejections, I did. I mean, I had stories that got rejected, but other stories were getting accepted. So, I, you know, I just kept writing more stories. But I was nominated for the Campbell Award in 73 for uh, Best New Writer and lost. And in 74, I was nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula and, and lost. And uh, <laughs> then in 75, I was nominated for Hugo and Nebula again. Lost the Nebula, but won the Hugo, so that was pretty cool. They gave it in Australia, though, so I wasn't there to personally accept it, but uh, still, that was it was pretty cool to get the phone call that I'd won. Yeah, yeah. And I've lost many cents and won a few more cents, and uh, <laughs> it it all works out. <laughs> and th but these were primarily science fiction, although you'd already discovered Tolkien. Oh yeah, I discovered Tolkien way back in junior high school, yeah. and and Robert E. Howard before that. And, yeah, you know. Fritz Leiber and um, you know C.L. Moore and all the people. So I was reading a lot of fantasy, or as much as it was. And, and back in the 70s and, and even more so in the 60s, fantasy was not very popular. Um, science fiction really dominated the, the racks at the time. Mm. There was Tolkien, of course, and he was hugely popular on college campuses. 
but most of uh, American publishing regarded Tolkien as someone, sort of one of these freakish one-off books that becomes a bestseller but will never be duplicated because um, it comes from a weird place. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until late 70s that I think uh, Lester Del Rey and Judy Lynn Del Rey proved that the, uh, there was a market out there for epic fantasy or what's been called epic fantasy other than Tolkien. But you, you were writing your science fiction novels and then you moved across to television. Was that an easy move to make? Yeah, well, I, I was writing novels and with increasing success, uh, Dying in a Light, my first novel, got quite a large advance for a first novel. Windhaven that I wrote with my friend Lisa Tuttle, who was here yesterday, uh, I know some of you met her, uh, got an even bigger advance. Fever Dream, with Fever Dream, my third novel, I kind of left science fiction per se and, and did a kind of more experimental uh, joining of two horrors because it was a historical horror novel set on the Mississippi River during the steamboat era with vampires. So that was quite different for me. That was a departure, but that book did even better than my preceding books. And then I wrote The Armageddon Rag, uh, my fourth novel, which was even more of a hybrid. It was a rock and roll novel, rock and roll, dark fantasy, horror, mystery novel about the 1960s and the rock music scene. And it got me quite a substantial advance, the first six-figure advance I ever got. And uh, it was going to be the book that was going to launch me into bestsellerdom. Unfortunately, it failed to bestsell. Uh, <laughs> in fact, it failed to sell at all. And it sold dismally. It sold worse than any of my novels. Uh, which is sometimes the risk when you try something a little unusual that uh, you can fall flat on your face. And suddenly my career was over as a novelist. Uh, nobody wanted my novel after that one. I, I tried to sell it and I got just rejections. things. I, I sold a short story collection for like half of what I gotten for my first novel many years before that. And I really wrestled with the idea that my, my career as a writer might be over. But Hollywood came along right, right around the same time, and uh, oddly enough, also through the Armageddon Rag, so, uh, which had been optioned for a movie that never got made, but I met the producer and he hired me to write some episodes for Twilight Zone. So I admitted it was destroying my career as a novelist, it was opening my career as a television writer. And sometimes the career of a writer is like that. I know there are probably, in this, an audience like this, there are probably some aspiring writers and uh, who occasionally come up and ask me for words of wisdom. One of the main words of wisdom I've had for you is uh, don't go into this field if you value security, because you will never have any. Uh, this, is a, this is a career of wild ups and downs. And uh, persistence is a big part of it, because you'll, you'll have days when, and months and sometimes years when nobody wants to return your phone calls and you wonder how you're going to keep your house, but then hopefully you have the other side too and you emerge at the end if you persist. Sometimes it's good to marry uh, a spouse who has a really good, solid, steady job. <laughs> and uh, that's, that'll work well for a writer. <laughs> good strategy for a writer. <laughs> did you find writing um, TV, did you find it satisfying or, or were you wanting to do something novelistic all the time really? You know, there were aspects about TV that I loved. Um, I liked working with other people. 
you know, after after so long as a as a short story writer and novelist, just sitting alone in front of my typewriter and then a little later in front of my computer, uh, trying to make up stories. It's just you and the and the machine, you and the blank page. Suddenly, I was part of a team that was putting on the show, and I was going into work every day. And there was an office, and there were other writers, and there were there were assistants, and people would make coffee, and you would have meetings, and you would break stories together, and then you would watch the dailies that had come in, and you would go to casting sessions. It was it was like a whole different world for me, where I was interacting with all of these all of these people, and I liked that. That was fun, uh, especially since I was very privileged to uh, join a show like The Twilight Zone. Uh, this was the Twilight Zone revival of the mid-80s, by the way. Uh, you know, Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone was 20 years before that, so I'm, I'm very old, but I'm not that very old. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a great, you know, Phil DeGare, who ran the show, Alan Brennert, Rockne O'Bannon, Michael Cassett, uh, just a terrific team of writers. And as an anthology show, we got in some great actors and directors who uh, worked for us as well. And all of that was, was great. Um, certainly the money was great, you know, they, the, when you, especially coming from the world of science fiction prose, suddenly they're bringing you wheelbarrows full of money, that's, that's always nice, and if you hang around long enough and get promoted, it becomes dump trucks full of money, and uh, that's, that's very good and very exciting. Uh, but there are, there are bad parts too, there's, you know, there's all these people telling you what to do, there's, there's ha having to get, get through the, uh, the network and the studio and the censors and you know you're it's hard enough to write a good story but then you have to write a good story and defend it from all the people who want to make it less good or want to make it good in a different way or want you to change everything about it and uh, that can be very frustrating at times but then there's the excitement of seeing your dreams achieve reality I mean the first time I actually saw them building a set to film an episode I'd written, to see these things that had just been words on paper, you know, vapor in the air, suddenly achieving tangible reality as large teams of carpenters and set designers and painters were, were, were building this thing that I had described and actors were actually saying these words that I had put down on paper. That was, that was really kind of cool. But I, I read somewhere that you said that sometimes maybe they weren't enough uh, of those technicians, that you had, you had uh, epic scenes that they kept saying, no, we can't possibly film this, George. Yes, I, I, you know, maybe because of those years writing prose, I had a hard time adjusting to this whole concept of budget. <laughs> <laughs> and I would always produce scripts that were, you know, essentially unproducible, that they, you know, people would say, oh, this is a great script, George, we love it, but it's like five times our budget. So can you please, you know, take out 12 of these characters and you know, uh, you've got 17 settings here, could we have three? Uh, and this, this battle at the end here where, you know, 100,000 people on each side, could that be a duel between the hero and the villain? <laughs> <laughs> and I would do that, but I, I wouldn't necessarily like doing that, you know. I, I always preferred my first drafts, which were larger and more expensive. More expensive. So you so the start of the nineties you decided to go back to, to novel writing. But you, you were didn't you start writing a novel called Avalon? Your novel Avalon? Yeah, Avalon was a science fiction novel I'd been thinking about for some time. And I did start it and I was writing that when the first idea for Game of Thrones came to me and I just 
knew I had to write it. I didn't know what it was. I knew it wasn't part of Avalon, but I, uh, so I put Avalon in a drawer. I've never taken it out and started working on uh, what became a Game of Thrones. It was 1991, still really in the middle of my Hollywood years. I'd done Twilight Zone, I'd done Beauty and the Beast, uh, and now I was trying to create my own show, so I was doing a lot of pilots, uh, shows like Doorways and Starport and The Survivors, uh, doing feature scripts, Wild Card, Fever Dream, um, some original scripts, uh, Fade Out. Um, none of them ever got made. Um, development, it's called, or development hell, uh, in the parlance of a lot of screenwriters and, and TV writers. Development hell can be a, a very posh address. The money is, is quite good. Um, you know, you are definitely above the wheelbarrows. You're in the dump trucks full of money stage. But I discovered <laughs> something about myself, which is that I'm a basically, I need an audience. I, you know, the idea of devoting an entire year of my life creating a world and characters and stories and then nobody ever sees it except four guys in the office who for one reason or another decide not to do it was, although financially rewarding, was not emotionally rewarding in any sense. And I said, ah, I got to get back and do books again. Was, it, was, was the first one of these affected by your experience as a scriptwriter? I mean, in terms of structure and the way you put it together? It was certainly, uh, I think my years in Hollywood sharpened my dialogue, improved my sense of structure. Those are the two most important things for a screenwriter. Good ear for dialogue and a strong sense of structure. Um, and that was affected. But also the, the, the structure of the books. You know, one of the things you learn writing for television is uh, the act break. I'm not sure you guys learn it over here in Britain because you don't have commercials, do you? It, does the BBC yeah. that you do? No, BBC doesn't, but yeah, everything else has commercials. Everything yeah, else a lot. Has, yeah. Yeah. Well, all American TV at the time had commercials, so you had to structure your stories in a four-act structure or, or four-acts in a teaser or four-acts in a tag or five-acts in a teaser. You know, it depended on the format of the show. But whatever it was, there were these breaks where in between they had to sell you toilet paper. So, uh, you know, the structure of the American television is that you always go out on an act break, which is sometimes a cliffhanger, but not always a cliffhanger. It can be uh, a twist, uh, a revelation, um, a point of rising tension, or uh, a character reveal. I mean, there's all sorts of different act breaks, but you go out with something that will hopefully hook the viewer and cause him to stay through the toilet paper commercial so he'll come back afterwards to find out. Um, and I learned to do act breaks and when I wrote uh, Game of Thrones uh, that's something I definitely carried over. So you'll notice the viewpoint structure of Game of Thrones. I, I end every chapter with some sort of act break where okay you, you want to find out what happened to Tyrion next but you don't get to. But Instead of a, a commercial, I have six other characters that you have to follow. <laughs> and uh, eventually you get back to Tyrion. But meanwhile, you may want Tyrion, but now you have to read this Arya chapter. And at the end of it, there's another act break. And now you want to know what's happening to Arya next, but you don't get that either. <laughs> now you have to follow Ned, etc. So it's, it's basically a television structure. But you, you must also have assumed at the end of when you completed that, that it was pretty much unfilmable because of the... Yeah, I, I didn't even care about it, it was filmable. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I went to town on it and I made it as big as possible. And uh, 
all the battles and characters and everything that I could possibly think of I threw in there and uh, uh, I never thought it would be filmed. It was impossible to film. So. These people at HBO are insane. I no, don't know no, what but, they think they're doing. But the movies came calling first, didn't they? They actually did, movie companies did. They, they did, yeah. yeah. There was this guy named Peter Jackson, you may have heard of. He did. Yeah, yeah. He had some success with these Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> and Hollywood is very imitative. So uh, the minute Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, hit big, every other studio in town that wasn't New Line started saying, well, we got to get us one of these. So are there more of these fantasy thingies out there? Oh, look, there's a whole bunch of them. And they're all on the bestseller list. So they all started getting snapped up for, for options. You know, Robert Jordan and David Eddings and Ray Feist and Robin Hobb and on and on. All of the big fantasy series uh, got movie studios sniffing around it, including mine. But in my case, I said, you've got to be kidding. You can't make this as a movie. There's no way. They're, they're bigger than Tolkien. Tolkien's great, but... You know, he just wrote three books, and they're, by modern standards, they're actually fairly small books. Yeah. They were huge for the standards of the 50s, which is why they broke Lord of the Rings into three. But by the standards of, of the 90s, they were not that big. Uh, my books, you know, they gave Peter Jackson three films to make that in. My books would have required like nine films just to make the three that were in print by the time they were calling. So I turned down the studios. I had a few meetings. I listened to what they say, but um, I was in a fortunate position. I didn't, didn't need the money, and I didn't see the sense of doing a deal that would result in a bad product. But, but television, you television was a different animal. It, it, it got me thinking, and I said, well, how could we do this? Well, it has to be done for television, not for movies. And then you have a lot more time. But it can't be done for traditional television like I'd work for, like CBS or NBC, because there's too much sex and violence in it. And I didn't want to lose the, the sex and the violence. So uh, uh, I didn't want to tone it down and, and produce uh, you know, a tepid uh, kind of version. But HBO, HBO or premium cable was, was the answer there. I mean, uh, you know, I don't. Again, I, I know you guys may not know the structure of American television, but we have the, the four over-the-air networks that are broadcast to anybody who has an antenna, but we also have a lot of cable systems. And there's basic cable that you get if you just get cable, but there's also premium cable. It has a regular monthly charge you have to specially order. And premium cable is where all the sex and violence has gone to live. <laughs> uh, because that way people can't complain that we're polluting their airwaves with filthy, sexy stuff. Uh, you actually have to sign up for it and say that you want it, and then it gets delivered to you. And so uh, HBO, um, and by far the best of the premium channels. And fortunately, David Benioff and Dan Weiss uh, had exactly the same idea. And uh, I had a great lunch with him and gave them the leave to go ahead, and uh, here we are today. I know you're an executive producer now. I think that's the title you've got. But in that oh, first executive producer. My apologies. But uh, in that first series, how closely involved with you, or did you just have you, did you keep back and let them get on with it? Well, I was involved, but uh, I wrote one script the first season. Mm -hmm. um, I was heavily involved in a lot of the casting. I was couldn't be physically present in Belfast, London, or Dublin, where most of the casting took place, but. Uh, they had a, a website that I had access to via a code word, and I looked at all the auditions on video and weighed in with my choices. 
but that being said, I mean, I mean, uh, although I've had involvement with the show, my job is still to write the books. It might have been different if the entire series had been finished and they were filming a complete product, but it wasn't finished, and they weren't. So I still have to complete the series, and so I can give them material to adapt. So David Benioff and Dan Weiss run the show, and that's their baby, and my baby is still the books. So there's, there's no way that they're going to run off and, and create storylines that are not part of your books? Well, they might. I don't know. Uh, it's, as I said, the show is their baby, and my baby is the books. So I write the books, I give it to them, and then uh, they, they take it from there. And, and on the whole, you feel they've been fairly faithful? Oh, I, yes. One of the most faithful adaptations ever seen in television, I would say. And you've been pleased with the... With she each? doesn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sure that's going to come up in question. <laughs> I mean, they, obviously, they made, they've had to make some adjustments here and there. Just well, yes, you have to make some adjustments. Even with, uh, you know, we have 10, 10 episodes per season. That's 10 hours. Um, even with 10 hours, you can't get everything in that's in the books. I mean, you have the books there in front of you, and they're, they're big, fat books. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in them. There's hundreds of characters. Uh, I can have hundreds of characters. Uh, they can't have hundreds of actors, because actors have this disconcerting habit of expecting to be paid. <laughs> and they have guilds and unions that enforce this uh, thing on it. So every time we add another character, we have to cast as an actor, and we have to pay someone, and it does add up after a while. Um, so, you know, even in television, we're, we're much better off than a movie would be with two and a half hours, but with 10 hours per book, um, we still have to combine characters, eliminate characters, eliminate scenes to try to deliver it. And we're, we're the, right now, I think we're the most expensive show on television. Uh, we have what might be the largest cast in the history of television, largest cast of regulars. Mm. Um, so we are carrying a lot of stuff, but we're pretty well at the limit, and the books are not at the limit. The books just keep getting bigger and bigger, uh, all of which necessitates some, some changes to make it producible. Yeah, yeah. What, seeing the actors and, and watching the shows, has it affected the way you are presenting nope. the characters as you write? <laughs> not in no, the I've, been, I've been living with these characters since 1991. We didn't even have a conversation about the show to 2007. That's 16 years that I was in bed with these characters yeah, uh, yeah. before uh, HBO came along. So nothing's going to change that. They're, they're my kids. I know them. Yeah, and, and lots, of, lots of Brit actors in the, in the cast, of course. Yeah, well, we film in Belfast, yeah, so yeah. it's cheaper to hire Brits and Irish <laughs> actors. So. <laughs> they're over here anyway. We don't have to fly them in from the United States. We have P Peter Dinklage, uh, I think, is the only American who's a uh, regular part of the cast from the beginning of the show. But we, I think we've employed pretty much every actor in, in the United Kingdom and, uh, and uh, the Republic of Ireland. And also we've got uh, people from all over Europe, uh, Sybil Kelly from, from Germany, uh, J uh, Jamie Nicholas uh, Custer-Waldo from, from Den uh, Denmark. Uh, We've got actors and actresses from France and from, from Norway and from Italy and, uh, you know, on and on. Um, so it's a pretty international cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, I'm going to stop there. There's, I've got loads more questions, but there's a big audience here, so let them get some questions in. Thank you for your patience with me. My pleasure. If you've got a question, stick your hand in the air and just wait for the camera to come to you. That lady there with the glasses on, and over here will take that guy there with the tattoos on his arm. So you go first, and then you. Hi. Hi. Um, have you ever... Is there any character in particular that you felt disappointed about being left out of the television adaptation? The characters that are disappointed that were left off the show? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of all my characters, so every time one doesn't make the cut, I'm a, I'm a little disappointed, although I understand it, you know. Uh, I, I wish Strong Bellwis would be in there, although he might have gotten me in trouble. He might have been a controversial character, but I, I, I had a certain affection for him. He's, uh, he's fun to write about. Um, I like the the two Tyrell brothers who, who have been dropped, uh, Willis and, and Garland. Willis hasn't actually appeared yet in the book, so though uh, he will appear in, in, in these later books, uh, but he's been referred to, and Garland has appeared, but uh, you know they were both dropped, uh, and, and Loris was essentially made the only Tyrell's son. So that was a, that was a change, you know. Um, but again, I understand why this stuff has to has to be done. Uh, we have a lot of critics and and people complaining anyway that there's so many characters they can't follow who's who. Uh, <laughs> if we put in every character who's in the books, their heads would explode. So. <laughs> okay, thank you, that gentleman there. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. Um, speaking of the enormous cast of characters you have as good as the writing and the locations and the sets are, your show can only ever be as good as the performers. And I'm delighted that both Peter Dinklage and Dame Diana, who's actually performing in Edinburgh this week, are, have been nominated for Emmys. Of all the cast who the show has obtained, who have you been most thrilled by, most pleased with? Well, you're asking me, who's my favorite child? Uh, <laughs> and any parent knows that'll get you in trouble answering that question. Um, but certainly, Peter Dinklage has been outstanding from the very first. He won the Emmy a few years ago for his work in season one. He's been nominated every year since, and I really hope he wins this season for his performance in season four, which was just extraordinary. Um, we have, all told, I think, the best cast in television. Um, one of the factors that I've really been pleased with uh, right from the first has been the performance of the child actors in the show. Uh, Maisie Williams, Sophie Turner, uh, and, and uh, Isaac Hempstead Wright in, in the roles of uh, Arya, Sansa, and Bran have, have all been extraordinary. And it's hard to find good kid actors. There are a lot of kids who want to act, and they, they can memorize lines, but they're not really acting. And then, then there's a smaller minority that have been told that acting is emoting, and they emote the, the hell out of every line that they have, and they're almost painful to watch. And you know, most kid actors, certainly in, in Hollywood, are work a lot in sitcoms and things like that where their main role is to deliver zingers and to be cute. Uh, our kid actors have to show an entire range of, of grief and fear and, and rage and uh, you know some very dark, 
dark emotions, very dark scenes to do. That's very demanding to act. We found three extraordinary talents in our young actors. Um, so I've been very, very, very pleased with them. Okay. Another question? Um, go up to the back there, that person up there, and over here. We'll just lay down the front row because it's easier, but we'll get up to you. I won't be able to take everybody's questions. <laughs> Um, why is there so much more sex in the TV series, and how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not really sure that there is more sex in the TV series. Um, <laughs> he disagrees. <laughs> You know, uh, we were, we were uh, I was talking to some people uh, when some interviews earlier today, there's a big difference between seeing something and reading about it. Uh, you know, a difference between two art forms. When you see something, it has a more powerful, visceral effect upon you. Um, I can write a line in, in, the, uh, in the books, and there are lines in the books. There are scenes that take place in a brothel. And I'll say, well, they were in the brothel and there were a lot of scantily clad women around. And, and you'll just glance over that. But when they dramatize that and they put that on the screen and you actually see the scantily clad women, it has much more impact. And you're saying, well, there are, there's a lot more sex here, but I don't think there actually is that much more sex. Um, but until someone actually does a count of number of sex scenes and all that, <laughs> I, which I haven't done, I admit, so I could be wrong about this, but uh, I don't know. Um, generally, I'm, I'm in favor of sex. Uh, <laughs> and I think a large portion of the audience is too. I mean, it's, it's kind of odd in American television. And, and again, I'm, you guys are, have a very different tradition over here. Um, I remember seeing I, Claudius in the United States. And when I, Claudius was televised in the United States in its initial running back in the 1970s, it was censored, heavily censored. They cut out, you know, the violent stuff where Caligula eats his own child and if he cuts it out of his sister's belly. And they cut out almost all the breasts and uh, all that because it was... Uh, American television, and we didn't show that kind of stuff. And you guys showed that kind of stuff over here, and you didn't really think twice about it. Uh, I think yours is probably a, a saner attitude. Uh, what we have in America is we, we can't have any sex at all on the broadcast channels, so we have a lot of sex on the non-broadcast channels. It's, it's like breasts are either forbidden or compulsory. Uh, and you know, it's, and it, it would be better if there was some, some sort of more healthy medium in, in between. Uh, I have mused, and, and this really applies to the books and some of the criticism I get on the books as well as uh, the TV series, but it has always astonished me that there's so much more controversy about the sex than about the violence. Um, and I think that says something about us that isn't necessarily a good thing to, to say about it. Uh, I, I, I can write a, a scene of, uh, and describe in detail a penis entering a vagina, and there will be a portion of an audience that will get very upset about that. I can write a scene of an axe entering a human skull, and nobody will blink. It's, 
And, you know, generally speaking, I'm, I'm much more in favor of penises entering vaginas than axes <laughs> entering skulls. But the world seems to accept the violence a lot easier than it accepts the sex. Okay. Next question. As you said, um, these characters were in your head for many years before the television series. And then you see them as characters on television. And I'm wondering if that affects the way you see them in your head and what you write next, whether that has any... What, what they've done with your characters has I, any I, effect on... I, it, it doesn't. Not on me. I, I, I accept that it does on the audience. Uh, you know, for, for the vast majority of, of uh, people, Arya will forevermore be Maisie Williams, and, and Tyrion will forevermore be Peter Dinklage, etc., etc. The image of the actors have, has solidly rooted uh, across the globe. But not for me. I mean, I have 16 years of living with these characters intimately every day, so it, it's not going to affect me the same way it would uh, a viewer. Okay, we'll take some from the middle here. Then. Gentleman here with the glasses, we'll get to you. And then uh, that guy with a purple top and the red T-shirt. Um, hi. Uh, I was just wondering if um, a lot of fantasy books are written from historical perspectives, looking back on you know family lineage and all that kind of thing. Um, with so many different characters and so many different families and lineages and things going through the books, I was wondering what kind of perspective you uh, gave the we're looking at the, sorry uh, what perspective you were looking at when you were writing the actual um, the worlds and the families well I was you know based it on history and of course but I didn't want to just transcribe history I mean certainly uh, the families like the Lannisters and the, and the Starks are at least very loosely inspired by the Lancasters and the Yorks and, and the influence of the Wars of the Roses but I don't believe in just taking a, a real historical character and changing his name and writing about him. I think you take elements of the character, but you change things, and you take elements of someone else, you mix and, you mix and match. Okay, that gentleman there. Uh, how much do you find yourself projecting on your characters? I mean, how much does Tyrion embody your sense of wit or Cersei embody your utter insanity? Um, and also, how, to what extent do you feel your characters are unreliable narrators? Because sometimes we get accounts of uh, important situations from different viewpoints, and it's very interesting to see what each character focuses on. So would you say from their perspective, that's not exactly how it's happening, that's just how they see it? Um, well, these are two big, big questions, and different ones. Uh, I, all of the viewpoint characters, first of all, let's divide the viewpoint characters from the non-viewpoint characters. The viewpoint characters, to write them, I have to live inside their skin and make them come alive from inside out. Non-viewpoint characters, we're just looking at externally. Um, so we don't really know what they're thinking or going on. But the viewpoint characters have to be created much more depth. And, and to that extent, I am drawing heavily on myself, um, who's, of course, the only person I really know from the inside out, not being a, a telepath or a wizard or anything like that. I see the world through my own eyes, and um, these characters do embody qualities that you find in yourself, uh, experience that you've had in your life, uh, your dreams, your desires, your fears, all of this stuff. Um, Tyrion's wit, of course, Tyrion's wit is my wit. 
Um, I make up all the lines that Tyrion says. <laughs> the only difference is Tyrion tosses them off at the appropriate occasion, while in real life, I usually think of something witty to say about a week and a half later <laughs> after the occasion has passed. So these, these uh, witty lines that Tyrion spouts uh, take me weeks to uh, come up with and usually get revised three or four times before uh, I'm satisfied with them. Um, that's one of the hardest parts of writing, I think, is, is to be able to create a character like that. Um, it, it's writing from the from the gut or from the heart or uh, something like that rather than intellectually. And it, it was a big breakthrough for me as a writer to, uh, back in the 70s when I was doing those early science fiction stories. I think my very earliest stories are all intellectual exercises. I was writing about experiences I had never had about characters who were an inch deep. Um, well, when I teach writing at, at things like Clarion and all that, I always give my students exercises where they, they really have to kind of open a vein and bleed all over the paper. That's the way you get the, uh, you get the important characters, you know. Sooner or later, every writer worth reading writes a story he wouldn't want his mother to read. Uh, <laughs> and uh, having to get that stuff out is an is, uh, important part of anyone's growth as a writer. Um, the second part of the question, I've already forgotten. What was the second part of the question? To what extent are they unreliable narrators? Oh, yes, I do use the device of unreliable narrator, yes, uh, particularly when dealing with memory. Uh, you know, I present these, these scenes sometimes from multiple different viewpoints, and the versions don't quite jibe, and then you have to, uh, you know, you have to figure out what really happened. and. Um, the only problem with that is uh, I've discovered that uh, not being perfect, I do occasionally make real mistakes. And I would prefer not to make real mistakes, but uh, my readers are very good. They, they point out my mistakes to me. <laughs> you know, I have a horse that changes sex between books. I'm, I'm terrible with the eye colors. Uh, you know, I got a couple characters whose eye colors change. Um, and when you make mistakes like that, then when, when you come across a uh, the unreliable narrator, uh, then the reader thinks, oh, he, he fucked up again. Uh, <laughs> but actually, I didn't fuck up. Some of that is quite deliberate. So I, I wish I could eliminate the real mistakes so that the fake mistakes could be seen for what they are, which is a, a sign of my literary genius and sophistication. <laughs> um, you know, but, but there you are. Yes, I, I think the unreliable narrator and, and the whole concept of viewpoint of uh, that people are telling these stories, they're looking through eyes. I'm not an uh, omniscient narrator. I don't believe in omniscient narration. So you're seeing everything filtered through the, the viewpoints of the characters who are your eyes and ears in that particular chapter. I, we have a book coming out in October, The World of Ice and Fire, which is a history of Westeros. Um, beautiful coffee table book. Uh, Elio Garcia and Linda Antonson of Westeros helped me write it. And it's, it's got all the history of Westeros and lands behind it. The original plan for this book was that Linda and, and Elio would go through all of the, the books I'd already written, the novels, and they would pull out all the factual things, the little nuggets of history, the legends and things, and they would all organize that. And then I would read that, and I would 
you know, they would write that up and I would polish what they wrote and expand what they wrote. And then I would add sidebars about little things that I knew about history and previous kings and legends and uh, add them to the text as, as sidebars. Um, and we were contracted to do this because we were going to use a lot of art in this book. We were contracted to do 50,000 words of text. And uh, Elio and Linda went through and turned in a first draft of like 70,000 words. And so they, we were a little over. And then I got a hold of it and, and I polished and expanded their, their 70,000 words to about 100,000 words. And then I added 300,000 words of sidebars. <laughs> um, so we had to rip out all the sidebars, and uh, those will eventually be published in yet another history book that's going to be years from now, which I was calling the Grimmerillion. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, we got the World of Ice and Fires coming out, and, and that'll be out in October. So you'll enjoy that. But the point of this story is one of the things I did in the sidebars that was a lot of fun, I was presenting history. And uh, I was presenting it not as objective history, but as something written by uh, an archbaster at the Citadel who was lived hundreds of years after the events. And he was drawing on primary sources from the histories that he lived through. And in the particular case of the Dance of the Dragons, we had, we had the Grand Maester at the time. We had his version based on court records and official things. We had Septon Eustace, who was the court Septon at the time, who was giving a religious cant to everything. And then we had the court fool Mushroom, who was relating all the filthy, dirty things that were going on and, and the lascivious stories. And that allowed me to present three versions of every major event that were often at dramatic odds with each other as to why, but in that way is to replicate real history. And I had a lot of fun, because that way I get to tell the story three times. And, uh, you know, one of them would be, Mushroom's version would always be completely outrageous, but it would be the most fun to read. And then you would have the other more sober versions. So, uh, you know, I, I do have fun with this point of view thing and the narrators. <laughs> Great, okay. Yes, Lydia. Uh, when I read a book or I watch a show, there are certain things that made me want to go and reread parts, like if it's particularly poignant or the dialogue is really witty. What are the things that make you go back and reread or rewatch parts? And that, that's I don't. I don't think I go back and reread, rewatch parts. I, I, I do reread favorite books, and rewatch favorite movies. Uh, but I usually watch the whole thing. Uh, I like to like Lord of the Rings. I, I reread every three or four years. Um, it's like visiting old friends again. And uh, I own a movie theater in New Mexico where I live. We always show Forbidden Planet. We opened with that, and we just had our first anniversary, and we showed it. And I'll continue to do that. I love Forbidden Planet, greatest science fiction movie ever made, uh, except no substitutes. Um, <laughs> but I don't look at parts. I look at the whole thing. OK, thanks. There's that person right at the back. Hi, George. Um, thanks so much for coming to Edinburgh. Um, it's really great to have you here. My um, pleasure. I've, you've portrayed so many different cultures in, um, in your series of books. Um, from the slaver cities and, and the kind of and their perspective almost on on the liberation of slavery, etc., um, and the wildlings in the north and their kind of view of the southern's structure and hierarchy, and even Dorne has a different view on how women are in society. I was wondering, what's your favourite culture that you've had to portray and that you've kind of enriched and given a history? 
I don't know if I have a favorite. I mean, I, I enjoy them all in different ways. Um, they're different ways of looking at the world. I've occasionally been asked uh, which of the seven kingdoms I would like to live in if I actually lived in Westeros. And my usual answer for that is, is Dorne, uh, because they have hot food and hot women. Uh, <laughs> but I got to admit, I enjoy the history of the North as well, the Starks and uh, the, something about the, the cold, bleak, icy, snowy, cold winds coming down and the magnificence of the wall, that attracts me as well. Uh, the Iron Men, are, the Ironborn of, of the islands are wonderfully perverse and uh, twisted to write about. The Lannisters are fun, so, you know, I, I enjoy all of these, these families and cultures. And I've had some fun in, in uh, the world book, too, The World of Ice and Fire, creating in, in detail some of, the, uh, some of the lands far to the east in Essos, uh, which are only occasionally mentioned in, in uh, the main novels because they're so far away. But some of them have some very interesting and peculiar cultures that it, it was fun to uh, flush out a little, at least in uh, very broad strokes. And you, know, and you write that and you say, oh, I guess someday I got to write a story about this. This would be a fascinating culture to explore. Some of them are based on actual historical cultures, of course, given the usual fantasy twists. Others are wholly imaginative, and those are fun too. A gentleman there, I think this might have to be the last question. I'm sorry. Uh, hello. Um, thanks very much again. Pleasure to see you. Um, I've gone through the World of Ice and Fire app that you also uh, put out, and I've seen a lot of the and after reading the books, I realized there's a lot of things you can maybe relate to in real life and real history. And what I was wondering was, how would you like the reader to perceive your books? Would you like us to immerse ourselves only in the fantasy you've created? Or would you also like us to like, relate what we've uh, read in your books to real life? Well, you know, art functions as a commentary on life. so. Yeah, I, I like, I, I'm not a guy who has answers. I'm not a writer who's preaching um, some particular philosophy or something. But the big questions do concern me. And I like the idea of making my readers think and debate and argue with each other and, and look at some aspect of the world or, or some consideration of, of governance or war or power and, and maybe from an angle that they haven't considered before and think about it. And uh, that's something that, uh, that I strive for and hopefully accomplish. Okay, I'm going to squeeze one more question in. This person here, because it's nearest, quick. <laughs> Let me say, for those of you who did not get your questions answered, I know many of you have tickets for the book signing to follow. Um, as, uh, as we've said, you, I, I, we have to keep, I've got to get through a lot of you in a really short time, so it's just uh, it's just an inscription, uh, just a signature, no inscription, and uh, we have to keep the line moving. But uh, you can ask questions as you come up. Um, just be aware that I have people come up to me and they say, "Can I ask a question?" And the answer is yes, but you just did. So, so don't come up and say, can I ask a question? Just step up to the desk and ask your question if you didn't get to ask it here. And I'll try to answer it while I'm scrolling illegibly in your book. <laughs> and now we'll take our last the question last to the crowd here. Yeah. All right. 
Uh, thank you, George. Uh, aren't you afraid of not being able to finish your books before the TV show gets the, the same level you're being writing? Well, they're certainly caught up to me. They're writing 60-page screenplays, and I'm writing 1,500-page books. Um, and there's no doubt that the show is moving uh, very, very fast. But, uh, you know, whether I'm concerned about it or not concerned about it, it makes no difference. I mean, I, all I can do is write one word at a time, one sentence at a time, one book at a time. So um, I'm writing the books as fast as I can write the books, and the show is moving along. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But it's, it's, it's almost out of my hands in that sense. Uh, so I can't worry about that. I just have to worry about telling the story as best I can. And David and Dan will worry about the show. Are you still enjoying writing the books? Are you still enjoying them as much as when you started them? You know, enjoy is a tricky word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I've ever enjoyed writing something until it's done. I enjoy having written more than I enjoy writing. <laughs> when I'm actually in the course of writing, it's hard work. It's hard work. And yeah, I, I feel satisfaction at the end of a day when I've written a scene that I really like, or when I come up with a line of, ah, this is a good line of dialogue, and you know, I read it out to my wife or something like that. But there's also days where it's just bloody agony. Ah, this is such crap. Why did I ever think I had any talent? You know, it's crazy. You know, this is terrible. And uh, those days are no fun. Uh, those days are depressing. So, but, but what is great is when it's finally done and the book, ah, I'm finished. Now, now I feel a great burst of enjoyment and satisfaction. And you know, then the next day I have doubt, oh, is it really good enough? I don't know. Let me, <laughs> maybe I should rewrite it some more. I'll go back. Uh, so uh, I don't know. At sometime 10 years in the future when everything is done and uh, I've moved on, I'll look back on this. and. Um, then I'll, I'll get the full measure of enjoyment. But uh, when I'm actually writing the, the work, it's, it's, you know, wrestling with Tolstoy or something, as Hemingway used to call it. But, uh, <laughs> and that Tolstoy is a mean motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> OK, thank you. That is all we've got time for. Thank you all for coming and being such a responsibility. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.